Chapter Six of Colonel Quaritch, V.C. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Colonel Quaritch, V.C. by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Six: Lawyer Quest. The day following the conversation described in the last chapter was one of those glorious autumn mornings which sometimes come as a faint compensation for the utter vileness and bitter disappointment of the season, which in this country we dignify by the name of summer. Notwithstanding his vigils and melancholy of the night before, the squire was up early, and Ida, who had been one thing and another, had not had the best of nights, heard his loud, cheery voice shouting about the place for George. Looking out of her bedroom window, she soon perceived that functionary himself, a long, lean, powerful-looking man, with a melancholy face and a twinkle in his little grey eyes, hanging about the front steps. Presently her father emerged in a brilliant but ancient dressing-gown, his white locks waving on the breeze. "'Here, George. Where are you, George?' "'Here I be, sir.' "'Ah, yes. Then why don't you say so?' "'Here I have been shouting myself hoarse for you.' "'Yes, squire,' replied the imperturbable George. "'I have been standing here for the last ten minutes, and I heard you.' "'You heard me? Then why the dickens didn't you answer?' "'Because I didn't think that you wanted me, sir. I saw that you hadn't finished your letter.' "'Well, then you ought to. You know very well that my chest is weak, and yet I have to go hallowing all over the place after you. Now look here. Have you got that fat pony of yours here?' "'Yes, squire. The pony is here, and if it is fat, it isn't for the want of movement.' "'Very well, then. Take this letter,' and he handed him an epistle sealed with a tremendous seal. "'Take this letter to Mr. Quest at Boisingham, and wait for an answer. And look here. See you are about the place at eleven o'clock, for I expect Mr. Quest to see me about the moat farm.' "'Yes, sir. I suppose you have heard nothing more from Janter, have you?' "'No, squire, nothing.' he means to get the place at his own price or chuck it and what is his price five shillings an acre you see sir it's this way that army gent major boston as is an agent for all the college lands down the valley he be a poor weak fool and when all these tenants come to him and say they must either have the land at five shillings an acre or go he gets scared he due and down goes the rent of some of the best meadow land in the country from thirty-five shillings to five of course it don't signify to him not a half-penny the college must pay him from his salary all the same and he don't go no more about farming nor land nor nothing than my old mare minder well and what comes of it of course every tenant on the place hears that those college lands are going for five shillings an acre and they prick up their ears and say they must have their land at the same figure and it's all owing to that boston varmint who ought to be kicked through every hole on the place and then drowned to dead in a dike. Yes, you're right there, George. That silly man is a public enemy, and ought to be treated as such. But the times are very bad, with corn down to twenty-nine, very bad. I'm not saying that they ain't bad, squire, said his retainer, his long face lighting up. They are bad, cruel bad, bad for everybody, and I am not denying that they are bad for the tenants. But if they are bad for the tenants, they are worse for the landlord. 
It all comes on his shoulders in the long run. If men find that they can get land at five shillings an acre, that's worth twenty. Why, it isn't human nature to pay twenty. And if they find the landlord must go, as they drive him, of course they'll lay on the whip. Why, bless you, sir, when a tenant comes and say that he is very sorry, but he can't pay his rent. In nine cases out of ten, if you could just look at the man's bank book, you'd find that the bank was paid, the tradesmen were paid, the doctors paid, everybody's paid before he thinks about his rent. Let the landlord suffer, because he can help himself. But Lord bless us, if a hundred pounds was overdue to the bank, it would have the innards out him in no time, and he knows it. Now, as for that varmint janter, to tell me he can't pay fifteen shillings an acre for the moat farm is nonsense. I only wish I had the capital to take it at that price. Well, George, said the squire, I think that if it can be managed, I shall borrow the money and take the farm on hand. I am not going to let janter have it at five shillings an acre. Ah, sir, that's the best way. Bad as times are, it will go hard if I can't make the interest, and the rent out of it, too. Besides, squire, if you give way about this farm, all the others will come down on you. I'm not saying a word again your tenants, but where there's money to be made, you can't trust no man. Well, well, said the squire, perhaps you are right and perhaps you ain't. Right or wrong, you always talk like Solomon in all his glory. Anyways, be off with that note and let me have the answer as soon as you get back. Mind you don't go loafing and jawing about down in Boisingham. "'because I want my answer.' "'So he means to borrow the money if he can get it,' said Ida to herself, as she sat, an invisible auditor, doing her hair by the open window. "'George can do more with him in five minutes than I can do in a week, and I know that he hates Janter. "'I believe Janter threw up the farm because of his quarrelling with George. "'Well, I suppose we must take our chance.' Meanwhile, George had mounted his cart and departed upon the road to Boisingham, urging his fat pony along as though he meant to be there in twenty minutes. But so soon as he was well out of the reach of the squire's shouts and sight of the castle gates, he deliberately turned up a by-lane and jogged along for a mile or more to a farm where he had a long confabulation with a man about thatching some ricks. Thence he quietly made his way to his own little place, where he proceeded to comfortably get his breakfast, remarking to his wife that he was of the opinion that there was no hurry about the squire's letter, as lawyers wasn't in the habit of coming to the office at eight in the morning. Breakfast over, the philosophic George quietly got into his cart, the fat pony having been tied up outside, and leisurely drove into the picturesque old town which lay at the head of the valley. All along the main street he met many acquaintances, and with each he found it necessary to stop and have a talk. Indeed, with two he had a modest half-pint. At length, however, his labour o'er, he arrived at Mr. Quest's office, which, as all the Boisingham world knows, is just opposite the church, of which Mr. Quest is one of the church wardens, and which was but two years ago beautifully restored, mainly owing to his efforts and generous contributions. Driving up to the small and quiet-looking doorway of a very unpretentious building, George descended and knocked, whereon a clerk opened the door, and in an answer to his inquiries informed him that he believed Mr. Quest had just come over to the office. In another minute he was shown into an inner room of the ordinary country office stamp, and there at the table sat Mr. Quest himself. Mr. Quest was a man of about forty years of age, 
rather under than over, with a pale ascetic cast of face, and a quiet and pleasant, though somewhat reserved, manner. His features were in no way remarkable, with the exception of his eyes, which seemed to have been set in his head owing to some curious error of nature. For whereas his general tone was dark, his hair in particular being jet black, these eyes were grey, and jarred extraordinarily upon their companion features. For the rest, he was a man of some presence, and with the manners of a gentleman. "'Well, George,' he said, "'what is it that brings you to Boisingham? "'A letter from the squire? Thank you. "'Take a seat, will you, while I look through it. "'Oh, wants me to come and see him at eleven o'clock. "'I am very sorry, but I can't manage that anyway. "'Ah, I see, about the moat farm. "'Janter told me he was going to throw it up, "'and I advised him to do nothing of the sort.' but he is a dissatisfied sort of fellow. Janter is, and Major Boston has upset the whole countryside by his very ill-advised action about the college lands. Janter is a varmint, and Major Boston, begging at his pardon for the language, is an ass, sir. Anyway, there it is. Janter has thrown up, and where am I to find a tenant between now and Michaelmas? I don't know. In fact, with the college lands going at five shillings an acre, there ain't no chance.' "'Then what does the squire propose to do? "'Take the land in hand? "'Yes, sir, that's it. "'And that's what he wants to see you about. "'More money, I suppose,' said Mr. Quest. "'Well, yes, sir. "'You see, there will be covenants to meet, "'and then the farm is three hundred acres, "'and to stock it proper means nine pounds an acre, "'quite on this here heavy land.' "'Yes, yes, I know. "'A matter of four thousand, more or less. "'But where is it to come from? "'That's the question.' Causies do not like the land any more than other banks do. However, I'll see my principal about it. But, George, I can't possibly get up to the castle at eleven. I have got a churchwarden's meeting at a quarter two, about that west pinnacle, you know. It is in a most dangerous condition. And, by the way, before you go, I should like to have your opinion, as a practical man, as to the best way to deal with it. To rebuild it would cost one hundred and twenty pounds, and that is more than we see our way to at present, though I can promise fifty if they can scrape up the rest. But about the squire, I think that the best thing I can do will be to come up to the castle to lunch, and then I can talk over matters with him. Stay, I will write him a note. By the way, you would like a glass of wine, wouldn't you, George? Nonsense, man, here it is in the cupboard. A glass of wine is a good friend to have handy sometimes." George, who, like most men of his stamp, could put away his share of liquor and feel thankful for it, drank his glass of wine while Mr. Quest was engaged in writing his note, wondering, meanwhile, what made the lawyer so civil to him. For George did not like Mr. Quest. Indeed, it would not be too much to say that he hated him. But this was a feeling that he never allowed to appear. He was too much afraid of the man for that and in his own way, too much devoted to the squire's interests, to run the risk of imperiling them by the exhibition of any aversion to Mr. Quest. He knew more of his master's affairs than anybody living, unless it was perhaps Mr. Quest himself, and was aware that the lawyer held the old gentleman in a bondage that could not be broken. Now George was a man with many faults. He was somewhat sly, and perhaps, within certain lines, at times capable of giving the word honesty a liberal interpretation. But he had one conspicuous virtue. He loved the old squire, as a highlandman loves his chief, and would almost, if not quite, have died to serve him. Indeed, as it was, 
His billet was no easy one, for Mr. de la Mole's temper was none of the best at times, and when things went wrong, as they pretty frequently did, he was exceedingly apt to visit his wrath on the head of the devoted George, saying things to him which he should not have said. But his retainer took it all in the day's work, and never bore malice, continuing in his own pig-headed sort of way to labor early and late to prop up his master's broken fortunes. Indeed, had it not been for George's contrivings and procrastinations, Honham Castle and its owner would have parted company long before. End of chapter 6